For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. Getting dressed is probably a normal part of your daily routine, something you don't really think about. But you might think differently after today's Turning Point as Dr. David Jeremiah shares some wardrobe advice from the Apostle Paul who encouraged believers to be clothed with Christ. What does that mean? David explains in his message, The Christian's Dress Code, after a word of introduction. Well, you know, the Bible is a very picturesque book. It's a very um, a metaphoric book. It gives you a lot of illustrations to help you understand spiritual truth. And one of the things the Bible does is help us understand the kind of people we should be by addressing the subject as if we were putting on articles of clothing. The Bible tells us to put on humility, to put on patience. It it tells us that we're to put on all of these qualities, put on forgiveness, and put on love. And when the Bible says this, it's simply saying, integrate these qualities of life into your own life. Um, Make sure your life represents Christ in you, the hope of glory. Be Christ to someone near you. You'll be the only Christ they'll ever see. The only Christian they'll ever know might be you. And the only thing they know about Christ is what they'll see in you. So Paul's going to tell us now, here's how we ought to embrace the Christian life. This is called the Christian's dress code. It's from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And it is, um, it's a part of this new book that just came out. It is uh, available to you, this book, for a gift of any size during this particular month. And the Christian dress code is right smack in the middle of the book. It, it is a chapter that covers everything we're going to be talking about today and tomorrow. Uh, the Christian's dress code is page 143 in the book. It's chapter 7. And it takes you through everything we're going to be discussing. It's our way of giving you something more permanent that will grab hold of your heart for days to come. Be sure and ask for your copy of Christ Above All when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of August. Well, let's get started with this lesson. I'm intrigued to intrigue you, The Christian's Dress Code. We spend hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars each year on clothing. But have you ever wondered what the Bible says about that subject? It really is a fascinating study. In the Bible's opening story, Adam and Eve sin, and what do they do? Well, they sew fig leaves together and cover their nakedness in shame. Later in the book of Genesis, Jacob presents his beloved son Joseph with a robe of many colors. Clothes are stained with blood as Joseph is swept off to Egypt, only to be turned into garments of fine linen when he gets out of prison. Clothes play important roles in the story of Saul and David in the life of the high priest and the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And when you get to the Psalms, David sings the truth that God removes our tattered sackcloth and clothes us with gladness. 
Isaiah rejoices because God has clothed him with the garment of salvation. Then the unthinkable happens. The divine tailor, the one who clothes himself in glory and clothes people in grace, steps into the story. Instead of wrapping himself in unapproachable light, he wraps himself in swaddling clothes. Jesus tells a story about a prodigal son who's covered with pigsty manure, and when the prodigal returns home, he is embraced by his father, who covers his shame with the best robe in the house. In another story, Jesus confronts a demon-possessed man who was known for three things, his uncontrollable madness, his graveyard home, and his constant nakedness. Then he meets Jesus. The demon is cast out, and we're told that the townspeople are amazed to see him clothed and in his right mind. Then Jesus does the most amazing thing of all. He goes to the cross and embraces our shame. He's mocked. He's wrapped in a scarlet robe and crowned with a thorny diadem. And then he's taken to Golgotha, where he is stripped, suspended between heaven and earth, and stapled to a tree to die. And the executioners crouched at the foot of the cross, casting lots to divide his clothes between them. At that moment, Christ, by wearing our shame and nakedness, secures an eternal life for his people and clothes us forever. Because of Christ's work on the cross, believers are now clothed in his righteousness. Now we are instructed to wear the armor of God, and we are to clothe ourselves with Christ, covering our nakedness and shame with his glory and beauty. And we are to look forward to the resurrection of our bodies, which the Bible describes as a garment that will one day be clothed in immortality. The storyline of the Bible begins with the tattered attempt to sew a wardrobe out of our own efforts, but it ends with sons and daughters of Adam and Eve living in paradise again, in the presence of God, reigning forever in the wardrobe of redemption. There the redeemed live into eternity as those who are clothed in white garments, whose names will never be blotted out from the book of life because they have washed themselves and their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, the clothing of the Bible. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul tells us what it means to clothe ourselves with Christ. So we're going to get dressed, and we're going to take the implements of our dress one at a time. Before we do that, however, we need to be reminded of who we are. Holiness in your life, sometimes referred to as sanctification, is just becoming in practice what you already are in position. In the first verses of our passage today, Paul wants to remind us of who we are. And he wants to remind us to receive this, this grace from Christ. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Paul begins this section of Colossians with this reminder. He tells the Colossians to remember that they are holy and loved by God. And the focus in verse 12 is not on what they can do for God, but what God has done for them. Did you know that God doesn't love us because of what we have accomplished? He doesn't love us because of how we compare to other people. He loves us just because he loves us. 
In the New Testament, Paul wrote this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Paul wanted the Colossians to know that God had chosen them, that they belonged to God. He's going to give them some instructions in these next few verses. But he's only going to ask them to live up to who they already are, to practice what they already are in position. They are the elect. They are the beloved of God. And that word beloved is one of the favorite words of the Bible. It's in the Bible a hundred times, and we know it best when Jesus was baptized and his father looked down upon the scene and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We are the beloved of God. We are his children. We are chosen. If we're Christians, we belong to the royal family. Can I get a witness? And we should know that so that we can know how important it is to live up to who we are. So, first of all, receive the grace of Christ. And now, secondly, put on the character of Christ. Verses 12 through 14, put on tender mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. We've already learned in earlier verses that we're to put off some things, put some things to death, all those vices we learned about. But now that we have put off these things, The Bible says, according to Paul, we're supposed to get dressed spiritually. We're supposed to put on some things. Each of the virtues that we're supposed to put on help us to understand how we get along with each other. When we get dressed right, we can live right. We can function right. It's most significant to note that every one of the graces has to do with personal relationships. Not any of them have to do with personal accomplishments. We're not to take on the idea that we're clever or efficient or successful. That's not what God is interested in. Paul tells us that Christianity is community, and it has as its divine side the amazing gift of peace with God. Let's get dressed. Let's begin to look like the people that we already are. You're a child of God. You're a child of the King. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now let's get dressed like children of the King. First of all, Put on tender mercies. Paul begins with tender mercies. The phrase literally means bowels of mercy. That's how the old King James translates it. I used to always be embarrassed when we read that in church. But it describes the feeling in the gut that moves us to compassion. And this phrase appears only 12 times in the Bible, almost always used in the context of prayer. It's an Old Testament word used only once in the New Testament. Guess where? Right here in 312. Paul is saying, we want God to treat us with tender mercy. He loved us compassionately, but we need to treat others the same way. William Barclay wrote about the need for mercy in the ancient world, and he could have been writing about our world for all I can tell. He said, if there was one thing the ancient world needed, it was mercy. The sufferings of animals meant nothing. The physical handicapped and the weak did not survive. There was no provision for the elderly. The treatment of anyone suffering from mental illness was unfeeling. 
Christianity brought mercy into this world. It is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the elderly, the sick, the weak in body and in mind, animals, children, and women, all of that's been done through the inspiration of Christianity. If you look at the world's history, you will discover that when Jesus came and Christianity happened, everything began to change. I could elaborate on that, but you'll just have to take that by faith. It is true. I had the opportunity to be interviewed by Sheila Walsh. Sheila Walsh has been here numerous times. She comes every year to our chapel to speak to our young people, often stops along to speak to our women. She's a very wonderful lady, and every time we have a new project, she interviews me, and it's part of our plan. She's a really good interviewer for one reason. She reads the book. Most interviewers don't. She does. So I kind of was obligated because she's done so many things for me. She knew I was going to be in Dallas, and she said, will you come over and let me interview you for my show? So I said, sure. Well, Sheila works for Life Today with James Robinson, and one of the things they do is they help to feed children around the world. So I'm sitting there in her brand-new studio, and we're talking about where do we go from here. And then she says, and before we go on, I want to show you something. And she showed a video of the children in Africa that they're trying to help. If you've ever seen those videos, they're gut-wrenching. Children laying in bed that haven't eaten, they're actually dying of starvation. I felt that here. I felt so, I, I didn't, I was hoping we wouldn't have to come back. And I was supposed to be calm and cool in this interview. That video grabbed me. That's tender mercies. Have you ever had anything grab you like that? Something you see that just demands your compassion and you can't help it. Paul says, listen, that's the kind of mercy God had for you. He saw you in your plight of sin and he loved you and he brought you to himself. Now, it's your turn. Go show that same kind of mercy to people. Number two, put on kindness. This word expresses the spirit of Jesus, especially as he was dealing with children. Jesus was very kind around children. And you know, Titus says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared. When I was a little boy growing up in Sunday school, I remember one of the first verses we had to learn was Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another. That was our little verse. How many of you know kindness is in disrepair? We don't have a lot of kindness in our world today. R.C. Trench, the 19th century Archbishop of Dublin, said kindness is a lovely word for a lovely quality. It's a virtue that shows that you care about your neighbors as much as you care about yourself. And when you have an opportunity, you do something kind to show them that you care. Oh my goodness, could we use some kindness today? It's gone out of our culture almost completely. Everything's so cold, hard, and coarse. Once in a while, you meet a kind person. Do you pray this prayer? I pray this prayer. Lord, help me to grow older as a kind old man. I'm not there yet, but I'm going there. <laughs> I don't want to be a grouchy old man. I don't want to be a grumpy old person. I don't want to be a coarse person. I want to grow in my ability to be kind to people. Kindness. He said, put on tender mercies. Put on kindness. Here's the third one. 
Put on humility, oh my. Colossians 2, 18 and 23, Paul describes the false teachers of Colossae. If you go back and look at those verses, it says they had false humility. Have you ever met anybody with false humility? They think they're humble, but they're not, and they tell you how humble they are, and in telling you they're humble, they discredit their humility. You can't tell somebody how humble you are and stay humble, right? It's a really hard quality. As soon as you think you have it, you don't. Put on humility. Did you know that on nine separate occasions, the Bible warns us about being wise in our own eyes? I remember finding that some years ago and then tracing it down. I wrote all the scriptures down. Nine times in the Bible it says, be not wise in your own eyes. Do you know why that's in there so often? Because we have a tendency to be wise in our own eyes. And if you're wise in your own eyes, you stop listening, you stop asking questions, you stop trying to learn, you think you know it all, and when arrogance and pride take over in your life, you are in trouble. The Colossians were dealing with the Gnostics. They were the know-it-alls. Paul says, if you want to combat the know-it-alls, be humble. Don't act like you know it all, because nobody knows it all. And thank God for the opportunities that he's given you. Be grateful for what you have. Be humble. And you know what I've learned? The Bible says this, actually. We can either be humble ourselves, or God will humble us. Have you noticed that? So I suggest you make this your own self-project because you're going to be much kinder to yourself than God will be in his process of humbling you. I've watched this over the years. People have to understand the power of pride to corrupt their godliness. Put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility. Here's one. Put on his meekness. What does that mean? Well, we don't use that word very often. When was the last time somebody came up and complimented you on your meekness? Nobody does that. And you haven't done it either. Because we don't know what it means, so we aren't going to use the word. And it doesn't sound like a good word. When you think meekness, you think weakness. But let me tell you something. The only connection meekness and weakness have is that they rhyme. That's it. (laughs) Meekness is not weakness. In fact, I can prove that to you. I can do this very convincingly if you'll let me. First of all, there's two people in the Bible who are known for their meekness. You know who they are? Jesus and Moses. Jesus was timid and cowardly, right? The Jesus who took a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. The Jesus who fasted and prayed for 40 nights alone in the wilderness where the Bible says there were wild beasts. The Jesus who set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem knowing he would be crucified, sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, suffering on the cross in agony. And Jesus Christ was the most courageous man who ever lived. And yet he said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus was meek. And Here's Moses. He was a commander-in-chief, a general who led the children of Israel. He stood face-to-face against Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler on the earth in his day. He was a mighty man of valor. Meekness is not being timid, soft-spoken, insecure, or shy. Here's what meekness is. This is really important for us to grab hold of. Meekness is the opposite of weakness. Meekness is incredible strength under control. This is the very definition of meekness, strength under control. Remember those three words and keep them in your mind whenever you hear the word meekness. 
When a person is said to be meek, that doesn't mean they're weak. They may be the most powerful person you know, but they don't have to always be showing their power to prove that they have it. They don't have to always be showing their authority to prove that they have it. They're powerful people under control. The best example of strength under control is what happens when a trainer takes a wild horse and breaks the stallion so he can be ridden and useful. The strength isn't altered, it isn't taken away, it's domesticated and channeled for good. So meekness is using our God-given abilities in a way that doesn't overwhelm or overpower other people. Meekness doesn't run people over. It's strength under control for the benefit of others. So meekness is pretty good. Somebody says, you're a meek person, give them a hug. Put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility, put on his meekness. Here's the one that gets us all. This is where the rubber meets the road. Put on his patience. Put on long-suffering, bearing with one another. Do you know what the meaning of long-suffering is? It's the opposite of (laughs) short-suffering. The short-tempered person speaks and acts impulsively. He lacks self-control. When a person is long-suffering, he can put up with provoking people. It's all right to get angry if you get angry for the right reasons, but it's wrong to get angry quickly at the wrong thing and for the wrong concern. Notice the phrase that follows it is, we're to be bearing with one another. Oh my goodness, what this phrase means. Here is Paul admitting that it can be hard to get along with some people in the church. I'm not going to ask for a witness. I already know that you know that. Sometimes we have to put up with difficult people. You know the difference is, here's what happens. We usually try to change them, don't we? Those people are hard to get along with. You can't fix some people. Did you know that? Some people are just hard to get along with. And Paul says, put on long-suffering and learn how to get along with people who were hard to get along with and to love them in Christ. People we would normally not choose to associate with come to church and sit next to us. They may sing loud, and they may sing off-key. Get over it. Just handle it. Just let it happen. In the days before smoking was banned from airplanes, and there was smoking and non-smoking sections on those planes, a man started to light a cigar. And the flight attendant told him that he was not allowed to smoke a cigar unless it was all right with the other person in the immediate area. So she asked the lady sitting next to him, do you object to his smoking? I absolutely object. I detest cigars, was the reply. So the flight attendant spoke to a young man who was seated near the front of the cabin and came back to report that he would not mind sitting next to a cigar smoker. As the cigar smoking man walked forward to his new seat, his former seatmate, the boisterous woman, turned to the flight attendant and said, I've been married to that man for 30 years and I can't stand his awful cigars. <laughs> I like that story because nobody sees what's coming. <laughs> but she'd been married to the guy 30 years and she still couldn't get along with him. I mean, what are you going to do? You, mar- you got the message. Well, forgive my story, but uh, it is a good story. And it's a reminder of what Paul is teaching us here about how to live the Christian life. Uh, The Christian Dress Code, part two of that tomorrow here on Turning Point. Don't miss it. And um, 
Don't miss the opportunity to get a copy of the book that we have written on the book of Colossians. It's a commentary. It is a book that will really bless you. It will teach you. It will be a a great uh, value to you because it'll be a resource. When you put it up on your shelf, you'll know. When I get a question about the book of Colossians, if anybody asks me anything about that book, I have a good chance of finding the answer by going to the book that was written about it. And uh, we want this to be of value to you. We want you to have this uh, for now and for the future. And it's yours for the asking. When you send your gift today, simply say, send me the book, Christ Above All. Don't forget to pray for Turning Point uh, as we launch into uh, the season that's before us, the fall season is going to be a very important one. We're releasing a brand new movie called Why the Nativity. Uh, We have a number of new releases for radio and television. There's a new book coming out in October. Uh, There's rallies in October and uh, November. These are all important things that are a part of our mission to get the gospel to the whole world. And we can't do this, friends, without your support. First of all, your prayer support, praying for us, that God will help us, give us the strength that we need. And then your financial support, making it possible for us to do all these things because you're standing with us financially. Thank you so much for joining us today. Tomorrow, part two, The Christian's Dress Code. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Christ Above All, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. When you do, be sure to ask for your copy of David's new book, Christ Above All a verse-by-verse study in Colossians to help you truly know who Jesus is. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James Versions, with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, Christ Above All here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point, we would love to offer you two free ways to stay connected. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash magazine for a subscription to our monthly Turning Points magazine. Each exclusive issue is filled with encouraging articles and daily devotionals to strengthen your spiritual walk. You can also sign up to receive our daily email devotional and be a part of our community of friends who receive daily encouragement delivered straight to their inbox from Dr. Jeremiah. Written in a thought-provoking manner, this concise yet profound daily devotional delivers the refreshment and focus you need as you go about in today's world. You can join the more than 600,000 monthly subscribers who are building their faith each month through these free resources. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. 
The late John Stott, well-known British preacher and churchman, was told by the director of London's largest psychiatric hospital that half the residents could be discharged if they could experience forgiveness. Billy Graham was even more optimistic. He felt that three-fourths of patients in hospitals could be discharged if they would grant forgiveness to others, freeing themselves of anger and resentment. Whether extending forgiveness or receiving forgiveness, the freedom of being unburdened has physical as well as spiritual benefits. The psalmist David spelled out exactly how it feels to be unforgiven, then forgiven, in Psalm 32. His experience is for anyone who will give and receive forgiveness. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's forgiveness on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.